As you know, the On Farm podcast is brought to you by the team at Seen and Heard PR and Marketing. And I just wanted to remind you about a new initiative that's happening here called On Record. On Record is a project to preserve voices, stories and memories for the future with your very own audio recording. So we're recording memories of rural life. We're travelling around Scotland, working with families and organisations to capture precious voices of family members or staff members or long-serving office bearers to preserve those for posterity and sometimes for historical value. So if you think this project is something that you'd like to be involved in and maybe you have a grandparent or a parent that you'd like to capture on audio while you can, please do get in touch. You can find out more at onrecordmemories.co.uk. Hello and welcome to this week's On Farm podcast. It's Anna with you again this week. I've got one of my favourite types of episodes coming up. I I love getting out and about on farm, but I also just love a good old natter. So this week we've got uh, myself having a chat with a man of many hats, Gareth Baird. Gareth has very recently been presented by SAOS with the Ed Rainey Brown Award. So that's an award really for lifetime achievement within not just Scottish agriculture, but uh, within the world of collaboration and cooperation within Scottish agriculture. So a really nice chat and you'll hear um, much more about Gareth's life throughout the podcast. My late father was a vet in Kelso and uh, he came down to Kelso in the mid-50s, literally bumped into my mother outside the vet's surgery and uh, things kicked off from there. Mum was an only daughter to my, an only child to my grandparents. By great good fortune, she was brought into the lease at Manor Hill, which uh, has turned out to be (coughs) such a valuable asset, you know, for all secure tenant farmers with secure leases. So as I was growing up, we lived here on the farm and I particularly like working with, with animals. Hence, I suppose, on an ar- arable farm, it's a bit of an anomaly that we still have suckler cows. Uh, there's good bits and bad bits to that, as everybody will know. But uh, but Dad always said to me, he said, make sure you have another string to your bow. He was quite specific about that. And I uh, went through school and then on to agricultural college, which I absolutely loved. And so, so the, you know, fully meaning, meaning to farm. And that's the way it's turned out. And I've sort of meandered my way to, towards non-exec directorships here and there, which I've really enjoyed. And really, uh, SEOS had an awful lot to, to do with that, setting off on that course. And I feel really st- strongly about family farms. And they under, are under a wee bit of threat. And this present crisis is not going to help at all. But our parish here in McCarson. I mean, it's it's absolute gold dust. We've got four farming families in this parish, uh, all tenants, the same landlord. I've known three generations with one of them and five generations w- with another. The glue that we have within this parish is just extraordinary. And I know people look at it, you know, with, with envy. Um, and we've all grown up together. It's not very good for your liver, but um, we have an awful lot of fun. And I can see, so the discussion going on at the moment is uh, amongst, uh, my age group is, you know, how, how do we get our successors to work together and, you know, take cost out of this fearsome machinery cost element and things. And and the 
the young men and young women are talking to each other in that regard, which is great. But but keeping this parish together is is just so important for us. And it, and I try and uh, you know if, when we get in front of um, politicians and things like that, and I have you know had because of various positions had the opportunity to do that. I try and tell them about the value of this long long term landlord-tenant relationship and, and that value we just and sure we all want to own our farms of course we do but we haven't uh, had the opportunity and um, and perhaps if we had that glue with this multi-generational element that we've got in this parish wouldn't be there so it's, you know there's two sides to everything really isn't there you maybe weren't at the beginning thinking in the context of the way in which we talk now about collaboration and cooperation specifically. But do you think your passion for that maybe started right on your doorstep? You know, the fact that you work so, not necessarily work closely with your neighbours, but get on so well with your neighbours. You obviously share knowledge and information and innovation. So you obviously, even though you're not in an official capacity working together, you're obviously working together as, as a group of friends and kind of colleagues in a way. Um, and do you think that's where it all started? Uh, well, it, it might well have, you know, and if you got caught short with a broken down combine or or you needed a bull after an injury or something like that, you know, it, it worked. And maybe that was the spark. I don't, I don't know. And, and that, the other thing I feel really strongly about, you know, some, some of these smaller family farms, there's a huge opportunity for family members to bring income into the household, just as you're doing, you know, in your capacity. And I, I, I feel really strongly that there's so much resource and talent in our in our farming community you know there's there's a huge opportunity for family members to do that and and really safeguard the family base and I, you know i remember you know i sort of go 20 30 years ago the rush for acres was absolutely phenomenal and i think the machinery rings and the development of the machinery rings have been really important in this Young members of the family working at home are seeing other opportunities to bring money into the homestead using their talents or their kit or whatever, and uh, or having a completely different job and getting their neighbour to help out at home. However, it, however they cut it, and I think it really strengthens our, our community in that. Um, so, I, I feel really strongly about that. I, I don't know whether that's part of you know because of this parish and because of our tight friendships and I see it happening with the next generation in our parish and it happening round about us it's absolutely fantastic yeah and I completely agree with you because because I'm always from a farming perspective I'm always fearful of having all your eggs in one basket as it were so rather than just necessarily always trying to grow the same one enterprise the more you can do to diversify your income streams, as far as I'm concerned, is, is is a good thing because then you're spreading risk, I suppose, as much as anything. And you're allowing people, everybody to do something about which they're enthusiastic um, and, and to give them that the opportunity to choose something that's of their own making in a way, I suppose. So... So you you were you were farming away in, in your um, younger years after you left college. You could have just carried on doing a great job of that, but there must have been something in you that was saying, "I I I love doing this, but I want to do something more as well." So could you was there a moment that you thought that, or is it kind of was it always inside you? How did the, that kind of evolution work? Well. Um... I was thinking about this just through the week, actually. In those days, 
And thank goodness the legislation's changed. So for tenant farmers, if you invested money on your your holding, you know, within 10 years, it passed to the total ownership of the landlord. And I think that was quite quite restrictive. And we were working away, uh, you know, just uh, in that regard. And we had the opportunity to join a, a grain cooperative. And it was very clear as the capacity of machinery was was growing. It was it was outgrowing what we could do at home at harvest and potato harvest and all that. And, and uh, so we got an opportunity to, to join a, a grain cooperative in about 15 miles away in Berwickshire. And then, uh, again, mostly driven by by tenant farmers, we, in 1982, under the chairmanship of the late Jimmy Jeffrey, we started up a seed potato cooperative on the outskirts of Kelso, for which we got enormous financial aid from, from the European Commission, which, which just allowed us to get going and, and build a, a facility with scale and, and really good facilities and what what have you so and as that started to build it 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 made me quite curious about the whole co-op movement and the different way of thinking and all the rest of it and then in 1995 got a phone call from Ed Rainey Brown who said I want to come and see you to speak about would you like to become involved with SEOS and it was really SEOS that enlarged my appetite uh, around cooperatives and 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 how we could hopefully help to drive the industry forward uh, as well. So it, it was a sort of step by step progression, if you like. Yeah, and of course, of course, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to chat to you for the podcast because you you're going to get modest in a minute, I'm sure, but. Um, you were recently awarded the Ed Rainey Brown Award for a Lifetime Achievement Award, which I was there. I saw I saw the whole thing unfold. And obviously, that was an emotional time, not just for you, actually, but for a lot of people in that room. I think it's an emotional award. You must have felt pretty chuffed. Did you? Were you surprised? Well, oh, it was... <laughs> Absolutely gobsmacked by the whole thing because I've just had a, a change of circumstances uh, down here where a long-term loyal employees had to um, retire from the farm because of a dreadful sciatica. So I, I've sort of been uh, having to <laughs> man the decks as it, as it were. So I was a bit tight for time and Jen Thompson and communications manager for SOS and John Hunter were John Hutchison, sorry, the SOS chairman, were biting away at me. You got to come to the conference and all the rest of it. And I just assumed that it was because it had been because of COVID reasons had been shifted to late March and there were short numbers. So I had um, put the tribute together for the last recipient, which was was James Graham, the most important guy in Scottish agriculture for the last twenty years, and and uh, to think that I was sort of following him was quite a I thought, oh, it's just great. It really is. You know, this isn't just, they don't just pull names out of a hat. You know, this is this is very considered and very much thought through. Am I right in thinking that your involvement, your, your involvement with SAOS has been going on for a long time? I think you're the only person who's been the chair, the president and the chairman of the organisation. The Crown Estate, you, you were involved quite early on in your career with the Crown Estate. Is that is that right? And what, what was your role there? That you must have, that must have been fascinating. It was absolutely fabulous. And I had 10 years with them. And I saw the advert for the post of Scottish Commissioner. 
So the, the Crown Estate Directors are called commissioners, and there was only one geographic title in that, which goes way back, and that was the Scottish Commissioner. And Sir Ian Grant was Scottish Commissioner and Chairman of the Crown Estate. We were winding up uh, in a positive fashion uh, the grain cooperative that was involved in, in as much as the co-op farming were buying it from us. And I had I sort of all hands on deck with that. And uh, I got a phone call saying that uh, your name's been, from a, a recruitment agency, saying that your name's been supplied to us with regard to the position of Scottish Commissioner. Would you be interested in so I, I said, well, that's kind of to phone. Let me do a bit of research, which I did. And the more I dug into to, to, the more I thought it, uh, it interested me. It really rang my bell. And a lot of very similar ambitions and qualities that SOS had. And uh, so anyway, I threw my hat in, in the ring and got down to Short Leet and went down to London to the Treasury. I had a wee bit of time to kill after it was finished and went down to the War Cabinet rooms, which are immediately below um, and for any of your listeners, if you've ever got in central London, go and see it. It is absolutely extraordinary. Anyway, I came home and um, they're not allowed to to announce their decision because it has to go in front of, I think it was the Home Secretary, I think it was Jack Straw. However, I remember I was down uh, dealing with some beasts down uh, in the grass parks and I got a phone call and it was the recruitment agency. And all they said to me was, I can't see anything else other than you're not stood down <laughs> so I didn't know what to make of that <laughs> anyway so then I, I uh, was appointed and started in 2009 and I just absolutely loved it and, and you know traveled all over the United Kingdom obviously a lot in Scotland to the four rural estates in particular in Scotland which I just loved it was just a, a, a super time and then in the middle of it, we had the independence referendum. As soon as the group got together to discuss what might change after the result of the referendum, we knew fine well that the Scottish Government would want to take on the Crown Estate assets in Scotland, which, which happened. And then, so I was much more uh, based on the, uh, in a UK fashion uh, after that. But it's a, it's a great organization and very much under the radar but it it um you know it's a 14 billion pound balance sheet and it the surplus all goes back to the to the treasury and now from the scottish assets obviously to scottish government and it really does uh, punch way above its weight in a whole lot of ways and what what you see with particularly with marine wind down the east coast of the united kingdom that's all crown estate driven in as much as they're the landlord of the seabed and they issue the the licenses and the the cash coming into the country, not least the green power, is absolutely phenomenal. So it was a great time. Yeah, well, if, if you can't spend your time doing things that are fun and interesting, then, uh, you know, uh, you're unlucky, aren't you? So that, that sounds, like, yeah, it sounds like it was, was a good time. Obviously, primary production, being a farmer as well, primary production is is key to you. But I know that you were also director of Scotland Food and Drink for a, a while. And so therefore, you must be keen 
to get involved in and to understand and to promote the whole food supply chain from farm to fork, effectively. Can you tell us a bit about your time at Scotland Food and Drink and you know, what you feel you achieved there and, and what it kind of added to you in terms of you know, your career as well as, as the whole country, effectively? That, that was a, a great in- initiative. I, I sat on Ross Finney's agricultural strategy group just around the turn of the century. So there was an agricultural strategy group where Ross Finney had thought that we needed a much better refined and targeted strategy. Alongside that, we had the industry strategy group, which effectively was the processors, and they were coming to the end of their strategy journey. And I remember so clearly, Ross got members from each strategy group to sit down together in a committee room in Holyrood and said, I think you people have got something to talk to each other about, but specifically around the supply chain. And I I remember very clearly a processor saying, uh, well, I'm having to use uh, Portuguese eggs. And agricultural strategy group members told me, said, daft, surely there's lots in Scotland for you. And he said, there isn't. And from that tiny wee fact, you know, people got going. And then we set up a stakeholders working group, which met for two years with, again, members from the agricultural and industry strategy groups and put the the format of Scotland Food and Drink together, having looked at a whole lot of different um, models uh, around the world. And and it, it was, it's been enormously fulfilling to, to see the development of that organisation. And I think one of the lessons that came from it, and it, there's nobody to blame here, but everybody expects these organisations to be up and running in two or three years, you know, and it takes longer than that because you've got to get industry buy-in. And as, as the obvious value that Scotland Food and Drink could offer, all parts of the supply chain became obvious to everybody. Then we started getting buy-in and then we started getting momentum. And and now it, it's got to, to the great place it is, you know, and James Withers and he's, got, he's just got a superb team there. So well led by James, they've got a cracking board and they're making real impact now. And I think, you know, for particular for many of the processing fraternity, uh, the help that Scotland Food and Drink, the team could give to them during this pandemic would have been absolutely invaluable. Imagine going into that with without somebody there, um, you know, supporting your corner. I mean, you'll you'll recognise the the worth of that with, with your profession. And it was a it was a real example of when folk coming together and leaving their hats outside the door, you know, of their own business, how you could drive things forward and make a meaningful difference. Yeah, I mean, it's not something I often think about, but but occasionally, you know, particularly now, actually chatting to you, kind of thinking about what, where would we be if if Scotland Food and Drink as an organisation had never been thought of, if, if that inception meeting had never taken place? I mean, I dare say there would be something else something else in existence but actually without it Scotland would be in a far far you know in a far worse place and, and actually even despite the pandemic the food and drink sector is is thriving largely in part to their their innovation and, and Anna I think there's another important point in here you know when we started it off it was obviously Ross Finney's initiative Richard Lockhead absolutely backed backed it up you know, after the, the the change in government. But there's a real lesson here in the private sector and the public sector working together. 
So government were enormously supportive financially in supplying the finance to get us up and running. And I think it was about an 85-15 split between public and private funding. And then as, as we began to develop momentum and built our membership and had all sorts of activities uh, which were income producing for the organisation, as we were able to to build that, the equity, if you like, in, in the or the funding of the organisation almost switched around the other way to the private sector being dominant. And then obviously you get challenges come right out the blue, the most recent one being the worst, obviously. But then I think one of the really good lessons about this is the public sector and private sector working together. The private sector were able to go to to government and say, look, these are our issues here. This is what you can help to to unlock this puzzle for us, you know, r- remove the hurdles there, and we will bring in the solutions in behind that. And it's a much, much better way of working than everybody standing shouting at each other, or barking at each other, you know. And it has, re- I think, it served the Scottish uh, food and drink industry and Scotland PLC, if you like, really well. And just another example of people working together for the greater good rather than just to stroke their own egos or, or their own bottom line. And Scottish Government have great credit for, for that because it's, it's unrealistic and unfair to think that ministers and civil servants have all the answers all the time. You know, there's so much that industry holds that, 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 that can drive things forward. So as you say, Scotland PLC has benefited enormously from the existence of Scotland Food and Drink. But actually, I think Scottish Farming PLC benefits a huge amount from everything that you've talked about already today. And that that is largely focusing on seeing the bigger picture and working with other people and not against other people to the greater good. And whether that is, you know, sharing a combine when you're stuck or setting up an official grain cooperative. You know, it can be tiny scale, it can be enormous scale, but Scotland PLC needs that collaboration and cooperation, doesn't it? Actually, not just within farming, but within everything. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. You just reminded me, pre-Scotland Food and Drink and um, SUS with James Graham and some board members, we were up uh, on a tour with Ross Finney and uh, James Graham had put this fabulous slide together as ever it was brief and to the point and it compared if you like the old uh, supply chain with the new supply chain to which we had to move so so some of the old thinking was you know after the your primary product leaves the 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 road end uh, then it's somebody else's you know ownership and if there's issues it's their issues and and James produced this marvellous slide with about 10 bullet points on either side about how the old supply chain worked and how the new supply chain should work it was a real light bulb moment in the direction in which we had to move and it's much more I suppose it could be simply characterised by it's much more a pool now of the the goods and the manner in which the goods are presented and which we produce, rather than the push, the, uh, the the old old way of thinking where we would just sh- shove things onto the marketplace and then you know hope for the best. So there's been a real change in both product and the service that the primary production 
segment of the industry is uh, is offering, and that's been an absolute game changer. And and I feel quite strongly about that. That gives us more influence in this. You'll not always get everything that you want, but you can start being a bit more firm, about robust about laying down. You know what this uh, product needs to realise in the marketplace. And, of course, we're into really choppy waters with that now. Yeah, the many voices saying the same thing are so much stronger than just just one, aren't they? Obviously, there's a lot of overlap between collaboration and cooperation and strategic thinking. Huge amount of overlap. But in John Hutchison, when he announced that you had won the Ed Rainey Brown Award, as well as many other words like wisdom, passion, enthusiasm... He credited you specifically as being a phenomenal strategic thinker. And I'm really interested in that from not just from a cooperational point of view, but from a wider farming point of view, because actually I'm not sure that enough people in farming are strategic thinkers. And I just wonder how how can how can that be changed? How can we get people to to think more? Because when when you're faced with challenges as we are at the moment, it's really important, isn't it? It sure is. Firstly, Anna, I've been enormously fortunate in that I, you know, was mixing with boards and and people, listening to them and uh, sharing ideas. And as ever, you get good dialogue going in it, and it makes people think harder. You know, an SOS is has been particularly strong in that area and that's their role you know they've they've got to be the blue sky thinkers out there you know and, and help um, our industry to, to develop um, and that has to be good thinking and, and, and well articulated not all the rest of it so and I, I think um, I also earlier on in, in my farming career I had a frustration you know that we, that often we were doing the same old stuff for the same old market, a bit about the pushing pushing stuff onto the market, you know, and we really weren't getting anywhere. And goodness knows there's enough variables in our industry with weather and currencies and regulations and all the rest of it to try and plot out a, a clear pathway. So I, I was always minded to try and change that together if, if we could. And I suppose that's... What, I'm no, uh, that, that was kind words from John, but I'm no different from anybody else. We're all searching for ideas to go forward. But that's where the collaborative or collegiate manner of doing that I find so helpful. Well, well, yeah, and, and a safe group as well, which is what SAOS is all about. You know, it's about trying things. It's about sharing ideas, getting feedback you know not every idea is a good idea but sometimes you've got to throw it out there and explore it to discover that I often find actually particularly in COVID you know I'll have an idea but you know working from home there's there's nobody to run that past you know and yes we can do it over Zoom we can do it over a phone call but actually sometimes getting together in a room and sharing these ideas and throwing them about and throwing some of them in the bin and taking some of them further forward is is incredibly valuable whether you're operating on a on a one business scale or whether you're operating you know as part of an enormous co-op it's it's still the, the principles are still really strong i think can i ask you a practical question as well because i, I think there'll be a lot of people there'll be a lot of people think listening th- who are farming perhaps um, or involved in other things thinking oh yeah it'd be i'd be, you'd be really interested to get involved with 
Grain Co. or maybe like to get involved with NFU or SAOS or SAYFC, all these organisations. But I think a lot of people think, oh, but but I haven't got time for that. You know, I'm bu- I'm a busy farmer. I've got family. I don't have time for that. So so h- how have you managed to juggle everything over the years? Because it's it's c- pretty phenomenal looking from the outside in. Well, it is a juggle. I suppose the biggest time is uh, harvest time because we have our own combine and all the rest of it. It's amazing how often when you had a meeting that you really had to go to because you're, you're paid to, uh, to do so. So so you have to go and honour that. And uh, it's amazing how often it rained when you were going away. And, and you know, you have the farmer's guilt, you know, about, oh, I should be at home and, you know, working and well, working in a different way. But it was extraordinary how often it, it um, you know, the conditions, the weather conditions weren't appropriate for that. You know, for any youngsters listening to this, it's really important that the organisations you join, and you mentioned this before, you have a, an interest or a passion for it. It's really important. And that you like the folk that you're working with and respect the teams of the organisation that you're working with. I think that's that's really important. And Often that takes away any sort of guilt complex you have about not being at home. And then you just get home and you find another day to do it, you know, or, or whatever. Now, Gareth, I, I, I'm not going to give your age away because you've already done it at the beginning of our conversation. But I'm not seeing any imminent signs that you're going to be buying a new pair of slippers and putting your gold watch on and, and relaxing. So what what's next for Gareth Baird then? Well, it creeps up on you. Well, actually, I think it gets faster the older you get. But, but I, I, you know, the time I was um, really involved with the Crown Estate and things, that was, that was really full on. And uh, after I stopped that... Uh, I had more time at home, and which I've really enjoyed. I, I really have. And then with l- losing my employee j- just recently, it, it really is full on this now. But it's great. You just plan it out, you know, and get on with it. And I, I can pull in help. And I'm not going looking for anything, there's no doubt. But uh, the Morden at the moment is a time where we can really drive forward and public concern around health, around zoonotic disease and all this, the Morden Scott and the other research institutes in Scotland have a huge part to, to play in this. And we did play a big part in in uh, testing both uh, with uh, human samples and indeed vaccines throughout the, the pandemic. Yes, in fact, we touched on it in a couple of podcast episodes, um, which we did in association with the Morden, and it's fascinating. I hadn't realised we were talking about equine grass sickness, but it's initially, but it's amazing everything else that came out that, that's being done over there. I had no real idea. It's, it's phenomenal. No, it's extraordinary. And all, you know, this great resource that we've got throughout Scotland with the research institutes clearly my uh, attention and interest is on the Morden and we've just got there's so many opportunities and needs out there animal production industry and for the Scottish human population indeed for the UK human population so a lot going on this now there's a very ambitious strategy sounds like it could be a whole other episode in itself so you might not be seeing the back of me just yet Before I let you go, Gareth, outside of work, so we haven't really talked about that. If you were to retire um, at some point in the next 10 years, have you got any ambitions for, for retirement? I don't know, do you want to learn to parachute jump or downhill skiing or anything like that? What, what would you do if you did have a bit less time at work? 
Well, I, I really enjoy my golf. And one of the things I've really enjoyed, and um, Kirsty and I have been fortunate enough to travel uh, widely, particularly to Southeast Asia, and I've just loved seeing golf around the world. But the bit I really want to see is golf around Scotland. And I've played quite a few Scottish courses, but I would love to, you know, get into some of the um, more fragile areas where I know they've got great golf clubs and go and visit them and see more in Scotland. And and uh, to a large extent, that uh, desire was hatched by um, a period as Scottish commissioner where I used to travel widely in Scotland. So there's an awful lot of Scotland undiscovered for me. And... Um, if we can take our golf clubs and uh, have a bit of uh, sport at the same time, that would be great. Oh, Gareth, that's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much. Ed Rainey Brown Award or no Ed Rainey Brown Award, I think it's obvious how much you've contributed. But I think but at the same time, I'm delighted that you're the recipient this year and just as delighted to, to chat to you. Massive thanks there to Gareth um, for for taking part and congratulations to him again for for winning that amazing award. You will have heard in the episode that Gareth is the chairman of the Morden Foundation. So if um, a little bit of science and technology and actually quite a lot of life-saving is of interest to you, uh, go back through the On Farm podcast archive and uh, search for anything with Morden in the title because we have done... Oh, at least two episodes. I think it was four, actually, we did in association with uh, the Morden Foundation. So you can go back and listen to those at any point. But that's pretty much it for this week. Um, as you'll know, the podcast is brought to you by Seen and Heard PR and Marketing. So if you have any types of communications needs, then um, you know where we are and um, you're very welcome to get in touch for an informal chat. Uh, but thank you for listening and we'll see you again next week. <laughs>